Hello all and the warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Coming to you from, an, although it's April, it's still freezing and strangely it's even bloody snowing North Wales where ever assisted by the True Crime Enthusiast cat, Peaks, which is a moniker that a listener came up with some time ago and I loved it, absolutely loved it so much. We seek out for your listening pleasures or displeasures some of the long forgotten and macabre tales of true crime that I've scoured the length and breadth of the UK and Ireland for. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You folks are the wheels that make the show happen and keep it going on. It's as fabulous as it always is having you guys joining me here today, and I hope that as the episode finds you, then you and yours are all good, all well, and you're staying safe. So again, as a follow-on from last time, I'm trying to keep the pre-case waffle to a minimum as much as I can, but the thanks don't get skipped whatsoever, as I said. So massive thanks go out first as ever to those who've gotten in touch to give feedback concerning the first part of our series, Monsters of Episodes, Mary's Story. Which is a horrendous enough tale to begin with, isn't it? But let's see what you say when you hear this part and the next one, because this has now become a trilogy. There was so much to it, it just a double episode became a triple episode. So also big thanks out to both my returning and new Patreon supporters out there with shout outs going out to new supporters Ross Mulligan, Vera Atterbury and Georgina Warden Rhodes plus Joe Westwood and Michael O'Connor who have edited their pledges and MRLM who has opted to annually support the show. Now thank you so much guys. There is some stuff that's gone out to some of you that hopefully you'll get through the letterbox soon from me. But the bonus episodes are there for you all to hear and I hope that you've at least made a start listening to them. Now if you wish to support the show alongside the likes of these kind folks, then it's very simple and very quick to do so. There's an ever-present link to the show's Patreon in the episode show notes for you to just click. Or you can head on over to the Patreon site and seek out the show on there, always remembering to add that podcast suffix at the end. It's the same show logo and everything on there so you'll know it when you find it. And once there, you just choose your support tier, and let's go disco, it's that simple. You could be hearing unreleased tales from the enthusiasts, such as Operation Magnesium, Horrors Over the Holidays, Murder in Lincoln, or Death in Highgate Woods, to name just a couple that your support gets. Or you could even be waiting for some show swag from me, who knows, you lucky lucky people. I shall also in the next couple of weeks, I've decided, be reviewing all of the show Patreon episodes to date in a roundup, like why I chose each case to cover and what research each one was like, and my own reflections on each tale, that type of thing. Much the same as I did with a review of the last series, and it's one that I hope you can catch me for. I look forward to doing it soon. So, and I think I'm getting better at cutting down the rambling, eh? In the previous episode, we had the sad case of a young woman walking home one evening from a Christmas pantomime taking place just a mile from her home a young woman who sadly never made it back home that evening. It was a walk that she had no qualms about making because it was her home area, somewhere that she knew well, somewhere she felt safe and comfortable in. But in that 15-minute journey, any safety that 16-year-old Mary Julian felt was gone, dispelled, wrenched away at the hands of a predator, an individual who, when I learned of his crimes, there was one word, or one broadcastable one anyway, to describe him above all others that jumped out at me. Monster. And as the tale progresses, I'm sure that you'll be able to see why. Now as I said before, what originally began as a standalone tale soon developed into a two-parter, and I know I've advertised it as that on the show's social media, but I went right down the rabbit hole here, and it's now become a trilogy. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including those of a sexual nature, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the second part of this series Monsters of Episodes, where we are once again this time in Ayrshire, this time for an episode I've entitled Devil in the Dock. So in the previous episode then, I gave the account of the horrific murder of 16-year-old Mary Julian, a Kilmarnock teenager who one Saturday evening was attacked, raped and savagely murdered whilst walking home from a Christmas pantomime, merely 150 yards from the sanctuary of her own home. We heard of the mass investigation into her murder, 
one of the largest in Scottish police history, and how no stone whatsoever was left unturned in the hunt for Mary's savage killer. It even involved a mass DNA screening of a large cross-section of all males in the Kilmarnock area. And although it wasn't this screening that was to lead to the arrest of an individual for Mary's murder, it was a combination of forensic science, sharp eyesight, and a good old-fashioned copper's hunch that was to lead to the arrest of the man, a 37-year-old Saltcoats resident named Gavin Maguire. As he had previous criminal convictions, Maguire had been spoken to twice already during the investigation, and had each time given slightly conflicting stories about his movements on the night of Mary's death, but which had overall alibied him for the time of the murder. Except that he had, after his second interview, been spotted unmistakably during a review of CCTV camera footage from the night of the murder, that was taken in a shopping centre only a short distance from the theatre Mary had just left, and almost around the same time as she had, which completely blew the overall alibi story that he'd told out of the water. He was now spoken to for a third time, this time being arrested and looked at very firmly as a serious suspect now, and now changed his story yet again, at first denying that the figure was him, despite very strongly matching clothing to that that the individual on camera was wearing being seized from his bedsit, then admitting that it was him, claiming that seeing the CCTV image had, I quote, triggered his memory when he was shown it. It was placing Maguire in the relevant area at the relevant time, his constant changing of story, and his past character and criminal record that made detectives convinced that this was their killer and the balls were well and truly tickled when the result of forensic examinations came back to them. It led to charges of the rape and murder of Mary Julian being brought against Gavin Maguire, charges for which he appeared at Kilmarnock Sheriff's Court on 29th of January 1996, was remanded in custody and was ultimately committed for trial. On Tuesday the 28th of May 1996, on the opening day of his trial, presided over by Lord Clyde, Maguire was led into the High Court in Glasgow handcuffed to two policemen. The fit, wiry-looking accused, his brown wavy hair swept forward, had almost a casual air as he sat in the dock, wearing what was to be his choice of attire for the duration of the trial. A full-length blue and black football manager's type coat over denim shirt and black trousers, white trainers on his feet, though bizarrely, wearing no socks. Maguire showed no emotion or even seemingly much interest as the charges against him were read out to the court, but as evidence was heard, Maguire seemed to take an intense interest, leaning forward and bowing his head so it was almost between his legs. Often he would fidget and rub his nose with the fingers of his left hand and would periodically call over his QC, Gordon Jackson, to whom he would whisper briefly to and confer with, and Maguire would then continue to watch proceedings impassively. Also in court to watch proceedings were several of Mary's closest friends, her boyfriend Jim Caldwell, supported by his family, and Mary's own sister, Claire. Although her parents did not attend the proceedings, one of the first witnesses called to give evidence, and there were several called, was Mary's still shattered and grieving mother, Maureen Julian. Her voice shaking with emotion, Maureen told the court how Mary was supposed to that evening have phoned home to be collected by her father, Philip, but when she didn't make contact with him when the pantomime had finished, her parents had merely assumed she must have left to walk the mile home by herself. Asked if she was concerned about Mary walking home alone, Mrs. Julian replied, No, she was 16 and it was only 9.20pm. However, when Mary hadn't arrived home by 10pm, she and Philip became worried. She continued, Mary was never late. I was concerned at that stage because she was always on time. She was allowed out until 11 o'clock on Saturdays and Sundays, and through the week she would get the 9.30 bus home from her friends. But I knew that the panto had finished early that night. By about 10.30pm, I walked down London Road to the Palace Theatre, but there was no sign of her. I then went home and was driven around Kilmarnock by my other daughter's boyfriend. At 11.45, I went to the police station and reported Mary missing. Two officers came out and asked me questions. 
Mary's best friend Julie's mother, Jane Holland, told the court that the pantomime had finished unexpectedly early that evening, saying, We actually thought it would finish at 10 o'clock. When it finished early, we came out and there were five or six of us, and I said we would get two taxis. Now although they'd offered her a lift home, Mary was adamant that she would walk the short distance home herself, and they felt no reason to insist that she went with them if that was her wish, thinking along the same lines as what Maureen had said. She was 16 and it was 9.20pm. Jane recalled that Mary had indeed set off towards London Road, turning back to wave at them as she walked away. Now we know she made it onto London Road because a succession of witnesses were to testify to this. The 13-year-old on the bus who knew Mary, Leona Steele, and the bus driver, Robert Wilson, both told the court of their sighting. Another witness who gave evidence, 38-year-old Andrew Scowler, told that he saw Mary walking up London Road at about 9.45pm as he and some friends on a night out were walking back down there towards the town centre having left the Broomfield Hotel. He told the court, A young girl came walking towards us. I thought it a bit strange she was out at that time of night. She looked to me to be about 14 to 16 years old. Now in the wake of the murder investigation, Andrew had come forward to report the sighting to police, and when he was shown a photograph of Mary, he recalled, That looks like her. I just remember a pretty wee lassie with curly hair. This was to be the last confirmed sighting of Mary alive before her body was discovered the next day. About an hour after this sighting, a neighbour of the Julian family, 56-year-old Teresa Coulter, who lived in Samson Avenue, told the court that she'd heard two screams coming from the nearby coach depot at 10.50pm or 11pm on December the 16th. She recounted, I've often heard girls' screams, and it's common when they're in a crowd, but these screams were isolated, and I later told police. Now whether or not this had indeed been Mary, it can never be determined, but certainly by the latter time Teresa claimed, Mary was either dead or dying, and her body lay to be discovered by police searching for her the following afternoon. Next up to give evidence was consultant pathologist Dr Ian Graham, who told the court how he'd carried out the post-mortem examination on Mary on December the 18th. He said that her body was stained with dirt and she had cuts and grazing on both shoulders, looking like she'd been dragged along the ground, whilst the multiple cuts and bruises all over her body suggested that she'd been pinned against the hard surface and roughly treated. Most of these injuries had occurred, I quote, immediately before or on the point of death. Before any of the crime scene photographs were then shown to the court, the judge warned the jury, it is an unpleasant sight, be prepared. And as these were shown, as the doctor talked the court through Mary's injuries, the almost 50 different cuts, bruises, and he gave details of her internal injuries, Mary's boyfriend, 15-year-old Jim Caldwell, ran from the court, too distressed to remain and listen. He was later to return with his father. Dr Graham said that Mary had cuts and bruises to her shoulders, arms, wrists and hands, her legs and her back, and bruising around both of her breasts. He agreed with prosecuting counsel Alan Turnbull QC that the schoolgirl must have been naked when most of these injuries were inflicted and told the court that an injury to the girl's vagina was consistent with an object having been forcibly inserted either before or at the point of death. Cause of death, he told the court, was asphyxia due to ligature strangulation which had been applied, I quote, fairly forcibly. Dr Graham added, the ligature was a blouse. Now as I said in the previous episode, stuff of nightmares indeed that isn't it, eh? How horrendous is that? The court then heard details of the subsequent investigation into Mary's murder, as we've said in the previous episode, which had ultimately led to the identification of a suspect, the accused Gavin Maguire. Maguire had been spoken to as a matter of routine already in the investigation due to his past criminal convictions, and when Detective Constable William Stokes took the stand, 
He told the court that he had first interviewed Maguire in this capacity on January the 8th of that year. Maguire had allegedly told him that on December the 16th of the previous year, he'd gone to the Tudor bar on Kilmarnock's Titchfield Street at 3pm, just before rugby came on the telly, he had claimed, had drank 7-10 to 10 pints of lager whilst here, and had stayed there until 10.45pm. A member of bar staff from the Tudor bar, Sally Duncan, indeed was to tell the court that she'd spotted a stranger in the pub that day, and had noticed that he was certainly there at 6pm because she had served him, but was unsure whether he was still in the bar when she left at 10.30pm. She pointed to Maguire as being the stranger in the bar that evening. Her boss, Jean Sharp, also told the court that she was in the pub at 10.30 that evening, and that there were about 8-12 to 12 customers in there at the time, but they were all regulars, and she knew each one. And indeed, Maguire had left by that time, despite his claims. Detective Constable Stokes said Maguire had first told them that when he left, he went to a bus stop outside the court. When no bus had turned up, he walked over to Irvine Road, where he got a taxi. But the evidence that had led police to speak to Maguire again, this time as a suspect, was a video taken in the Burns Mall shopping centre on the night Mary vanished which showed a man both detectives viewing recognised as being Maguire walking through the mall on the Saturday night at 9.20pm and walking out of the mall behind a young woman, only minutes before Mary had vanished. When he was shown the video, Maguire at first had flat out denied that it was him in the footage, but then began to change his story and admitted that he was in the area of the murder at the crucial time. At first he feigned ignorance and said that he couldn't remember being there, but eventually he told police. I was up there looking for a bus. The video, however, showed Maguire clearly changing direction as he caught sight of the woman, 23-year-old Shona Ronald, who lived on Kilmarnock's Ockencar Drive. He had been heading towards Kilmarnock's bus station and looked set to go home to his mother's house in Stevenston but the video showed him tracking Shona as she left the Burns Mall by an underpass. Mr Turnbull told the jury. He was caught on the video looking towards Shona Ronald. He then moved towards her and went behind her. If she was his intended victim, we will never know. As Maguire stalked the oblivious woman, the underpass she had headed out through brought her out right at the Palace Theatre right where Mary had been watching a Christmas pantomime and at about the same time she was leaving. Mr Turnbull said that Shona had then walked down London Road to where her girlfriend was looking out for her out of an upstairs window before entering her friend's house. He said, This left Maguire in London Road ahead of Mary who would have unwittingly turned on her way home and walked down the road towards him and there were at least two witnesses who could place Maguire on London Road even later that evening. A man driving through Kilmarnock that Saturday, 51-year-old David Gillen, on his way to see his newly born granddaughter, told the court that he saw a man near to the bus garage at about 10.45pm, heading from the bus depot back towards London Road. He unhesitatingly identified Maguire as being this man to the court, who then heard how David had also earlier picked out Maguire immediately at a police lineup some weeks later, even though Maguire had by that time had his hair cut. The second witness, however, did herself no favours. The court was to then hear from 32-year-old dog trainer Shirley Whitelaw of Galston in Ayrshire, who said that she saw Maguire in London Road that evening. She pointed out Maguire as being the man that she'd seen that night in court and explained how he had stepped out beside her car, telling the court, He came from behind and looked in my car. Something made me look because he kept staring into my car. He was just smirking. However, it emerged that before the trial, Whitelaw had initially attended a police lineup and had picked out someone else, someone at least 10 years younger than Maguire. When pressed to explain this change in identification, Whitelaw claimed that previously she had been nervous about being on an ID parade, concerned that she could be seen through the glass, 
and that she was expecting the whole process to take only 15 minutes. Instead, she said that she'd waited for at least two hours at Kilmarnock Police Station and was, I quote, anxious to leave as her dogs had been left in the car. She indeed claimed that she had seen the man who she'd seen on London Road in the lineup, but had deliberately, bizarrely, given police the wrong number of the person in the lineup, identifying to police someone who it transpired, as I said before, was 10 years younger than the accused, whom she now, of course, identified in court. After returning home from the ID parade, she said that she'd told her husband what had happened and had immediately phoned police to tell them that she'd lied. How bizarre that, isn't it? Eh? Totally odd. There was now an angry exchange as Maguire's defence counsel, Gordon Jackson QC, cast doubt on her credibility and accused her of lying. Whitelaw snapped back, This is costing me time and money. Jackson hit back, I'm sorry, but this is a murder trial. It's important. Whitelaw added, I'm not going to come here and lie. I wouldn't do that in court. But you would lie in a police station? Asked the QC. Now Whitelaw could say nothing to this and instead claimed, I quote, I was just panicking. Some people, eh? Why do they do it? Now this reminded me of that other bloody moomin that we met last series in the Margaret trilogy, the one who made up a fictional sighting of Margaret's killer and wasted so much police time and effort, and all to try and become part of the new community that she'd moved to. Concerning Shirley Whitelaw, you deserve any discomfort, squirming or shame in court for doing that, you really do, and I believe that you should have faced criminal charges of wasting police time, at the very least. Perhaps your dogs don't have to go everywhere with you, and some things are a bit more important, aren't they? So give up your time. Just an idea of that, pleb. So, Maguire could be placed at the scene by a number of mostly reliable witnesses anyway, as well as the time-stamped CTTV footage. And there was even stronger evidence to be heard, this time from the forensic scientists and even Maguire's own mother. Strathclyde Police forensic scientist Geraldine Gallagher told the court that she'd attended the murder scene after the schoolgirl's body was found and examined Mary's body, which was lying naked apart from her socks. Her underwear and trousers were lying underneath her body and were inside out, and her boots, which were discarded nearby, were found to have a large amount of soil on them, indicative of her being dragged to the scene. Geraldine then took tapings for fibres from Mary's body and also from the wall and the edge of the bunker in which she'd been found. Several red and blue cotton fibres were later found on the tapes that had been used during examinations of each, which were later found to be, I quote, indistinguishable in colour and characteristics, the type of dye used and the amount of washing, from a red and blue checked lumberjack type shirt belonging to Gavin Maguire that had been removed from his bedsit. Asked by Mr Turnbull if the fibres came from the same shirt, Geraldine said that it was highly probable or they must have come from a similar shirt with the same amount of wear and the same amount of washing history. She had also found in the bunker a broken piece of white shoelace, which was noticeable and stood out because it was so clean, and which was similar in construction to a shoelace found in a drawer at the accused mother's home in Glencairn Street in Stevenston, where, of course, Maguire was living on the night Mary was murdered. Maguire's mother, 66-year-old Nettie Maguire, told the court that her son Gavin had been living with her in Glencairn Street throughout December of the previous year and usually went out only to walk her dog, having moved in with her at the end of the previous November. On the day Mary was killed, however, he left to go out on a Christmas shopping trip to Kilmarnock. She told the court, I thought he would be back at about five or six in the evening for his dinner but he didn't come home until 11.20. Maguire had indeed on December the 16th arrived home at 11.20pm in a taxi and he'd been drinking. He had with him a carrier bag containing an ornament, a doorbell and a bar of chocolate for his mother and once back he made himself something to eat and then came back to sit with her and watch television. Mrs Maguire told Mr Turnbull, 
The night he came home, his trainers were kind of dirty, splashed with rain or mud. His jeans were also muddy at the back, below the knees. The following morning, she discovered her son's jeans in the washing machine for her to wash, telling the court, I noticed that they had spots of blood on the front of them. Mr Turnbull asked her, Did you ask him what had happened? To which Mrs Maguire replied, He told me that he'd been run into a toilet and had fallen. She then identified to the court a red and blue checked shirt and brown leather bomber type jacket that Maguire had been wearing that night. The same red and blue checked shirt that the fibres detailed earlier had been a match with. Now the jeans in question had been washed so there was no blood remaining upon them negating the possibility of any comparison. But Mary's clothes were a different story. As we said in the previous episode, spots of blood had been found on Mary's jacket, and although the majority of it was from herself, from her own injuries, there was also a large spot of blood that had been found on the edge of the left sleeve of the jacket, one that a second, different DNA profile was obtained from. Forensic scientist Martin Fairley told the court how he had studied the then unidentified sample of blood found on the jacket, and that when Maguire was identified as a suspect, had obtained and examined blood samples from Maguire and both of his two younger brothers, Barry and Mark, as well as a sample of Mary's herself. He commented that all four of these DNA profiles' genetic fingerprints could be isolated, and admitted statistics suggested that the same DNA profiles would be found in one in 8,200 men, but that reality could be different, conceding there could be more or less of the same strain in any town. However, his findings to the court were as follows. We found the DNA profile was from a male, and that it matched the DNA profile of Gavin Maguire. Three further bloodstains were examined, another one taken from the jacket, and two from the piece of broken white shoelace that was found at the scene. From each test, it showed DNA which matched both that of Mary Julian and Gavin Maguire said Mr Fairley. The same lace that the court had already heard matched one in every characteristic from one found in a drawer at his mother's house. So by this point, Maguire is already looking a bit up shit creek without a paddle here, isn't he? And he didn't really help himself when he came to take the witness stand in his own defence due to his story and his arrogance. Maguire had a smirking look about him as he took the stand and was asked by Mr Turnbull, Do you think there is something amusing about this? Maguire replied, No, I just sometimes smirk. When asked about the account he had given on the occasions he had spoken to police before his arrest as a suspect, and more specifically, why he had lied throughout them, Maguire claimed that he had gone to Kilmarnock on December the 16th to do some Christmas shopping. After buying, I quote, a big bar of chocolate, a glass ornament and a doorbell. For his mother, he went to the Tudor bar. Originally he told police he hadn't got a clue about the time he had left here, but what he had told police was his best estimate of the time he had left and the route that he had taken, saying, I quote, I was sure I left the Tudor pub at 10.45pm. Mr Turnbull replied, This turns out to be a load of rubbish as you later admitted it was 9.10pm. Maguire retorted, I must have looked at my watch wrong. He then claimed to the court that after he was shown footage of himself, he had at first denied it, but then his memory had miraculously come back. Mr Turnbull accused this again of being a lie, saying, It was only when they showed you the video that you realised you had a problem you hadn't previously known about. Maguire stormed, No, that's your version. Maguire even furthered that police should have told him about the existence of the video evidence as soon as they knew it, instead of allowing him to continue with his original story. Yeah, seriously. Under cross-examination, Maguire became agitated when constantly asked about the different stories that he'd told. When appearing before a sheriff for a judicial examination after being charged with rape and murder, Maguire had given no comment answers to questions put to him during the hearing, 
and when asked by Mr Turnbull why he didn't explain his reasons for changing the story here, Maguire had replied curtly, Because I'd already given four statements to the police, I was quite happy with the first statement I gave. Now both Maguire and his mother Nettie had told police that he had arrived home at about 11.20pm that evening, which she had repeated in court as we've just heard, but then he subsequently claimed that he must have made a mistake and that he got home just after 10pm. In the face of her evidence, Maguire claimed that his mother had got the time wrong as well, because he had told her what time he arrived home. He also said that his mother was wrong in her evidence about seeing blood staining on his jeans, and that she'd only spotted mud on them after he had got back from walking the dog on the Sunday. Mr Turnbull said that Mrs Maguire had expressly told the court that she'd seen the mud on his jeans on the Saturday night, but Maguire said, I don't remember her saying anything like that. He also denied ever having been in London Road or near the McKinley Place coach depot that night. When the advocate deputy then said witnesses Shirley Whitelaw and David Gillen had both seen him in the vicinity of London Road and walking away from the direction of the bus depot, Maguire said, I don't think so. Referring specifically to Shirley Whitelaw, Mr Turnbull said, She said you were drunk and were smirking. And of course, you do smirk, don't you, Mr Maguire? Maguire was forced to reply, Yes. Not letting up, Mr Turnbull then turned to the broken shoelace found at the murder scene, the one containing traces of both Maguire's and Mary's DNA, and which matched one in a drawer at his mother's house. He told Maguire, The lace broke in the struggle with Mary Julian. Since only you and her were there, only you can tell us that now because you made sure she can't. You left a bit of lace lying there, didn't you? Maguire said, No, I didn't. Mr Turnbull replied, Even at this late stage, you were trying to lie your way out of this. No, that's not true, Maguire said. Maguire then began to raise his voice and talk rapidly over him when Mr Turnbull told him, You were the one that killed Mary, and you were talking like this hoping to hide and find a way out of it. Maguire replied, It's you's doing the hoping. Prove it. You've not got me on video killing her, so prove it. I think it was pretty much overwhelmingly proved, to be honest. It certainly was in the eyes and minds of the jury, anyway. Following a four-day trial, on Friday the 31st of May 1996, the jury of nine women and six men took only 30 minutes to find Gavin Maguire unanimously guilty of sexually assaulting, strangling and murdering Mary Julian as she'd walked home from that pantomime on the evening of December the 16th the previous year. After the verdict was announced, there were audible gasps of relief and shouts of yes from relatives and friends of the dead girl. Maguire showed no emotion and made no response as he was then sentenced by Lord Clyde, who told him, You've been found guilty of a callous and brutal murder of a young helpless girl and an act of sheer atrocity. The number and nature of acts of violence you've perpetrated only make the case more appalling. There is a question in my mind whether you should ever be released. Your evident lack of humanity and self-control makes you a danger to the public. He then sentenced Maguire to life imprisonment, adding that in his mind, Maguire should never be released from prison, except on extreme humanitarian grounds. The 30-year minimum tariff that he imposed upon him reflected these views. In the wake of the sentence, Defence Counsel Gordon Jackson later offered no excuse on Maguire's behalf. I mean, what kind of excuse could there be after all? but said that his client had not even thought about appealing against either his conviction or his sentence. It was probably thought pointless to do so by Maguire, for following his conviction, his previous appalling criminal record and background had been read to the jury, and as they already had the measure of him in his character, it would just serve to strengthen that. It read as follows. 1975, theft by housebreaking and road traffic offences, sentence, Borstal training, banned from driving for two years. 1977, High Court in Air, assault with intent to ravish, two charges of rape, 
Assault and robbery and assault. Sentence, 10 years. 1984, Paisley Sheriff Court. Assault and robbery. Sentence, fine of £100. 1986, High Court in Air. Attempted rape and assault to severe injury and danger of life. Sentence, 10 years after the judge described Maguire as, I quote, an extremely dangerous man. Now I'll come on to more details of Maguire's previous offences in the next and final episode, but bear in mind that this is somebody that by the age of 37 had already received prison sentences totalling at least 20 plus years for the severity of his crimes. What the jury was not allowed to know is that in 1993 at the High Court in Glasgow, Maguire was reportedly found not proven on a charge of assaulting and attempting to murder a sex worker. And just the previous year, Maguire had also been accused of attacking a young woman appearing at Kilmarnock Sheriff Court on the 21st of August 1995 on a charge of assault with intent to rape and robbery and was remanded in custody while the police and the Procurator Fiscal investigated. However, on the 28th of November 1995, bearing in mind the date, Maguire was liberated by the Crown on the grounds that there was insufficient evidence in law to provide corroboration which is required by Scots law. He'd been out of custody just 19 days before he murdered Mary Julian. Less than three weeks. How unreal is that, eh? And I'll come on to explain a bit more in the next episode. Immediately following his conviction, Maguire was taken to Scotland's largest prison, Glasgow's Barlinny Prison where he was held in solitary confinement in a special segregation unit. He would usually have begun his 30-year minimum sentence with others of his kind in the former Peterhead prison, which was at the time a specialist centre for sex offenders. But no Scottish prison wanted Maguire. He was such a despised figure, they were forced to admit that they couldn't guarantee his safety. A top Scottish prison service insider revealed at the time, There's a real problem with Maguire. Nobody wants him to be killed in their prison. He's okay as long as he's in the segregation unit, but he cannot stay there forever, and he's the most hated con in Scotland. I told in the previous episode how even during his first night behind bars on remand for Mary's murder, prisoners threw lighted papers onto the roof of the unit where he was being held, shouting abuse and threats towards him, how he was twice moved to different cells for his own safety during this period, and was eventually placed under 24-hour guard. Well, this didn't ease up any after his conviction, of course. I'm sure that you'll be pleased to hear. I was, I really was. By the time he'd been convicted of Mary's murder, from his first night of his life sentence, Maguire had a bounty of 50 ounces of tobacco and 30 phone cards on his head, an amount that would keep many inmates in supply for a good year. It was thought to be one of the highest ever bounties offered for a prisoner's murder in the notorious Barlini prison, and cons were gearing up just to try and get hold of him to try and collect upon it. Inmate Brian Hogg, who has a bit of a point of trivia, was a cousin to Caroline Hogg, one of the victims of serial child killer Robert Black, told the Daily Record newspaper at the time. His crime sickened everyone in here, and even if they tried to protect him, he'll be got at sometime. I remember how I felt when Caroline was killed, and I feel the same way about Mary Julian. We just want a family to know that even though we're in jail, we still feel for them. A former cellmate of Maguire's, Thomas Easton, who had served time with Maguire in Schott's prison during Maguire's second term of imprisonment six years previously, added, I wouldn't like to be in his shoes now. He won't be safe anywhere. He is a sick, sick person, but I can't see him survive in prison again. Gavin Maguire won't walk out of jail alive. He furthered that Maguire had been, I quote, a grass at Schott's prison, and thus escaped the usual abuse sexual offenders got, protected by prison officers who made sure no one got close to Maguire to harm him. Easton added, He was a yes man and a telltale, and in return, he was protected by the screws. Now, 30 years is a long time to be looking over your shoulder like that, isn't it, eh? 
but totally deserved is all I can say. And what are the people Maguire left devastated in the wake of his terrible crimes? Now the family of Mary Julian have always remained private and dignified in the wake of her murder and have never publicly commented on Maguire, his sentence or the feelings that they have towards him. They've never spoken to newspapers or the media, well as far as I was able to establish anyway, preferring to deal instead with their grief in private as a family unit. Maureen Julian did, however, for a time find some comfort in corresponding with another mother who had suffered a loss and could understand the feelings that she was experiencing. A woman who coincidentally was named Mary also. The daughter of Mary Smith, Shona Stevens, had been murdered on a footpath in Bawtree Hill, a large housing estate in North Ayrshire, less than 10 miles from Kilmarnock, on the 10th of November 1994. Like Mary Julian, Shona was a striking redhead simply walking home, although Shona's killer has never been found, or, and with the biggest possible hint that I can give, has never yet faced charges or trial for a murder. Now we'll perhaps talk about Shona in the next episode. Well, there's no perhaps about it at all, we will do. Mary Smith, hearing of the tragic and horrific murder of their daughter, empathising and feeling the pain of the Julian family and wanting to reach out, wrote them a letter of sympathy. She told the Daily Record some months later, I wrote to Mary's parents and received a letter back thanking me for my sympathy. Maureen said in it that she felt a bond with me because unlike most people who wanted to but couldn't, I knew how she felt. I'm planning to send them a card now Maguire has been jailed, to let them know that I'm thinking of them. I'm sure that the Julian family had so many well-wishers, and undoubtedly the support was there for them. But it must have been so incredibly difficult for them, how would you even begin to try and pick up the pieces? Following Mary's murder, they had attempted to go on with their lives as best as possible at home, but transforming Mary's ground floor bedroom into an extension of their dining room, it being too painful a memory to be left as her empty room. However, it ultimately proved too difficult to do, for less than two months after Maguire's conviction, the family was reported as having put up this Sampson Avenue home for sale for an asking price of £41,500, wanting a move to the other side of the town. Not wanting to leave where their family and friends were, but desperate for a fresh start. The reason for this was that the back garden of their Samson Avenue house looked onto the stagecoach bus depot where Mary had died, just 150 yards away. A neighbour of the Julian said at the time, They've been great neighbours for the past 21 years and their house is lovely, but they can't face life here anymore. Mary's best friend Julie, who'd kept in touch with Mary's parents, added, Gavin Maguire destroyed so much of their lives they are determined that he's not going to take any more. They can't even go out into their back garden because the bus station is close. It's too painful. And Mary's boyfriend, Jim Caldwell, sympathised with the family, saying, I can understand why they're moving. It must be horrible waking up so close to that place every day. I couldn't cope with it. And I must admit, I don't think I could either. I think I'd have to go too. What do you guys think? Jim himself, meanwhile, had also taken Mary's death very hard. Following Maguire's conviction, the Daily Record newspaper spoke to a still grieving Jim as he visited Mary's grave in Kilmarnock Cemetery, where he had by that time become a regular visitor. Placing a bunch of chrysanthemums on a grave, Jim said, I usually come up here on my own. I spend about 20 to 25 minutes here each time. I talk to her and tell her that I love her and that I wish she was still with me. I still find it upsetting coming up here. Mary's grave was tended lovingly with scores of fresh bouquets of flowers and soft toys, showing that although Mary was gone, she was certainly not forgotten by her loved ones and friends and the people of Kilmarnock. Her black marble gravestone today bears the simple yet touching words. In loving memory of Mary Elizabeth Julian, aged 16 years, much-loved daughter of Maureen and Philip, and dear sister of Claire. 
Good night, sweetheart. Asked, and somewhat insensibly considering the location and emotion of the moment, I thought, asked if he'd considered moving on, finding somebody else. Jim told the Daily Record that the pain he felt was still too great for him to even think of moving on at that time. He went on, I have spoken to a few different lassies, but have not been out with anyone else. I feel guilty about having a life of my own. Mary was too special to me to find anyone else just now. I wasn't even really interested in my birthday. I just wished I could have been with her. It was terrible being without Mary. Maguire should never have been let out. If they'd kept him in, my Mary would be alive today. Even 30 years isn't enough for this beast. I'd love to get my hands on him. He should never be freed. Poor lad. Now I really felt for him here when I researched this. I think that often, people can sometimes overlook the feelings of youth in such situations and instead focus and direct all of their sympathy towards adults and upon the grief that adults feel as though they're the ones solely affected and youngsters are made of stronger stuff and will just brush something like this off or not properly understand it because they're immature or... But it's not always the case, that, is it? Look at the devastated words of Jim and Julie Holland which were reflected in their tribute to Mary's funeral. This is many years ago now, granted, and both Jim and Julie today will likely have families, careers, different lives of their own. But neither one of them will have forgotten Mary, will they? Somebody who meant so much to them. Meanwhile, someone else considering the actions of Maguire was someone who was fortunate not to have been his victim that December evening. 23-year-old mother of two, Shona Ronald, the woman who was captured on a security video being tailed by Maguire. The same video that helped convict him for the murder of Mary Julian. She told the Daily Record following Maguire's conviction, I'm lucky to be alive. I lie awake at night thinking, it could have been me. And the amazing thing is, I knew nothing about being followed until police showed me that video. She'd given the same evidence at Maguire's trial. How much must that chill your blood, eh, seeing that on video? Shona remained convinced that she was Maguire's original target on December the 16th of the previous year, explaining when in court how she'd taken a shortcut through the Burns shopping centre that evening ahead of a night out with her friend Lorraine Dorans. Oblivious to the tale she had picked up, Shona had explained in a later police statement, I walked past the Palace Theatre and up London Road until I came to my friend's house. She was leaning out the window looking for me because I was late. It was at this point that Shona lost Maguire when her friend Lorraine Dorans leaned out the window of her flat in London Road and threw her keys down to her. The young mum then opened the door and went in, a move which almost certainly saved her life. Shona and her pal Lorraine later went out and enjoyed a Saturday night out in the pubs and clubs of Kilmarnock unaware that only a mile away, a schoolgirl had been murdered by the person who had followed Shona. Shona later admitted the torment that she felt in the wake of that, saying, I don't know Mary's parents, and if I met them, I don't know what I would say. How must they feel? They could look at me and say, our wee girl would still be alive if he'd caught you. That's what I keep thinking to myself. Mary would still be alive today, if I'd not gone to Lorraine's flat. But then I look at my own children, Gemma, who's five, and Justin, four, and I think that they could have been without a mother, and it doesn't bear thinking about. It doesn't at all, does it, eh? What an awful feeling to be left with, feeling guilt for being oblivious to a stalking predator. You cannot feel guilty due to the actions of one despicable individual. That is terrible, that. And in the final part of what I said become a trilogy because there was just so much to it, I shall give you some more insights into just how despicable an individual we are talking about here when I run through some of Maguire's past crimes and his character. Although I'm already pretty sure no one listening will be queuing up to get his bloody prisoner number and address to send him a Christmas card or anything, as well as the full details explaining the reason that Maguire was even on the streets that December evening. I've decided to do it this way because it gives a nice equal kind of balance and amount to the episodes, 
Plus, it's not a bit lopsided, and one goes on much longer than the others as well, because because things like that proper make me twitch, you know. There is also still a great deal to come with the tale yet, including things that I know for sure will sicken, anger, and disgust you guys. But as ever, we go big or we go home here, don't we? And this is certainly a tale that I wanted to do justice with. So once again, there's no usual post-case meander. I'll save all of that for the final part of our tale, which I shall get off and go and put the finishing touches to now. It is practically already done. It just needs some fine tweaking and the enthusiast touch. You know what I mean? Although it's a disturbing tale, how one individual can cause so much pain and turmoil, and I haven't even proper touched on Maguire yet, I hope that it is a tale that you found both informative and interesting, and I hope that you can join me for the final part coming next time around. Not much else remains but for me to say that I shall wrap up here now then. I thank you all very kindly for joining me here today, and that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now. <laughs>